here we go. Three, two, one. Oh, my gosh. We were just about to record, and Tony says, I have to run and get a towel. Because Vic told me to put a towel under my microphone. Because of all the flooding that has happened in the various places that she's lived. Oh, my God, I don't. There's no flooding. I didn't do it. Now she just carries around a towel. She's uh, snake bit is what it is. A little gun shy with the flooding. Flood shy. All right, everybody. This is a celebratory day. It's a day when little Tony finally has grown up and moved into her own place. She's been <laughs> in hotels. She's been in B&Bs. Airbnb. No, no, it's not a BNB. It was an Airbnb. There's a difference. Oh, really? yeah. I get oh, it. Yeah. yeah. Airbnb. Yeah. Hollywood Hell was not a BNB. Wow. I'm so happy for you that you're in this. I'm... Me too. It looks like you treated yourself to a manicure after moving in, too. No, she always has that. I like my nail lady, but I'm a little bit scared of her. Mean? So I go every two weeks, and it's awfully expensive, but I'm afraid to tell her differently. Oh, yeah. What happens if you tell her differently? Oh, no. All right, we're going to start this show. <laughs> I, I just reached the end of my patience there with yeah, that. Yeah, there's a peek behind the curtain. That, that Tony, <laughs> Tony's afraid of her manicurist. You know what? Well, what you could do is flood her place as well, and she won't want you I'm there that often. I did not flood any oh, places. Oh, no, you are you are Tony flood risk Stop Anita Hull. How many <laughs> floors up are you? Because we, we just want an idea of how many people are going to have to move when the I'm swimming the, pool happens. I'm on the first floor. No, Frank Lloyd Wright was inspired by Tony. Falling water? Exactly. Here we go. Everybody ready, ready to start a show? I think Are it's you a good ready? Idea. Let's do her. Let's let's just do it. Here we go. Yeah, let's do it. Coming to you live from our houses in Los Angeles, California, this here is Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, your comedy field guide to life. Tonight, the debt ceiling. What do we know about it? Well, all I know is that it's bad. It's a mark of our collective sin and our fiscal incontinence. It's a shameful scarlet D that we must wear forever. And we all know that raising the debt ceiling is a necessary and drab annual sin that we can usually ignore, but becomes a four-alarm panic-at-a-disco tits-on-fire crisis when there is a Democratic president and a Republican House. So, I don't know anything really. But our guest, Johns Hopkins professor Kathleen Day, can explain all of it, including why one John Hopkin wasn't enough. Plus, what could be better than your feedback? How about your feedback that you submitted through our brand new website? Yes, it's time for Mailbag, Nobody Listens to PaulaPoundstone.com edition. I'm Adam Felber. This show's trusty conversational abacus, diligently moving our rhetorical beads in an orderly and parsimonious fashion to bring in a sensible dialogue on time and under our word count budget. And now, please welcome the woman who burns through our entire digression budget in a single sentence and then puts another $20 billion on our notional credit card. It's Paula Poundstone! Yay! Hey, you guys. Hey, Adam, you know what? I, I, I'm i sorry. I, I spaced out. What is it time for? Oh, God. Oh, yeah. I could see the disappointment on Tony's face that you weren't there for me when I said it was time for mailbag. <laughs> Nobody listens to PaulaPoundstone.com edition. <laughs> Thank you for clearing yeah. that up. Um, sure thing. 
Hi, Adam, and welcome to tonight's house band, Chris Erickson on the clarinet. <laughs> Chris is a longtime nobody from Union, New Jersey, who is a certified Granny Award winner. Her grandma loves her music. In her spare time, Chris arranges and plays video game cover music with her sister as a woodwind duo. You can listen to their music on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and TikTok by searching for Warp Whistles Music. That's Warp Whistles Music. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Yeah, welcome, Chris. And what's new with Paula Poundstone today? Well, Adam, I think I've told you before, I, I walk a lot, partly because I have dogs yeah. and, and also just deliberately for the exercise. I walked yesterday uh, 23 blocks to the REI to get some new cargo pants because one pair that I have has a hole in them. One pair that I have fit weird and the back pockets aren't deep enough so my credit cards keep falling out. One pair that I have are too long and the bottom of the pants drag on the ground. And those are all the pairs that I have. And cargo pants are my uniform for half of the year. So I walked 23 blocks to the REI to get cargo pants. So I hate to try on clothes. However, I do have a strange lack of knowledge about my size. So I go into the REI and I can't find the pants where they used to be because they move stuff around. Uh, and I haven't been there in years. I did find two pair because I'm very concerned that the kind of pants that I like, which are the kind where the legs zip off, which I need because of how often I have to sew on my legs. Uh, so uh, because of the grabber that we do at the top of the show. So I found two pair of the zippered kind on a clearance rack. And I picked up a pair. I didn't even look at the size. I just held them up to myself and they kind of looked like they would do. So when I did look at the size, I realized it said two. Okay. The pair I was wearing said 32, but they're too long and I have to tie a ribbon around the front two belt loops to keep <laughs> keep them up. So, you know, something smaller probably made sense. Another pair at home say large, and clearly they're using a different sizing code. And I, I've never been a two, but I thought, well, maybe they just have like a one, two, and a three instead of small, medium, and large. So That's a giant leap right there, Paula <laughs> When I held them up, they looked like it was going to work out just fine. Uh, and I hate trying on clothes. So I find some more in a different section. These were sized like 6, 8, 10, 12. I, I remember that I was once an 8. So I have a pair of 2s in my hand, and I grab an 8, and I thought, oh, you know what, on the off chance, uh, I pick up a 10. There was no way I was going to need a size 10. I mean, I walked 23 blocks to the REI, for Christ's <laughs> sakes. But, but on the off chance that the chips and Reese's are starting to take a toll, I thought, you know, let's, let's be realistic. So there was a clerk at the dressing room. When I came out, he said, just put the clothes that I don't want. I should put them on the rack outside the dressing room. So I go in. I liked the color of the twos the best, so I try those on first. And... I can get them up to about my knees. So now I try the eights and they go up a little bit higher. So now I try the tens and I can't zip them. Now I don't want to come out of the dressing room because I'm going to have to put these pants on the rack beside the dressing room. And I don't want the clerk to see that I have no idea how big I am. And, and it's not really the size that I'm concerned about. It's the shocking lack of self-awareness. <laughs> so... 
Eventually, I suck it up and I go back out there and I found a pair of zeros, which, you know, okay, this brings me back to my original confusion about sizes. How much fucking sense does it make? A person who's a size zero just isn't, right? That's just stupid. If there's zero, I mean, if I have zero money, it doesn't mean I have a little bit of money. It means I have zero money. I can tell you what about a person who's size zero. They don't have credit. I can tell you that. So I got some 12s when I'm out there. But, you know, I walked 23 blocks home. So I did buy the 12s, but now they're too big. Did you try them on before you left the store? No. I just was so concerned about being judged. Well. So that was my REI adventure. But after 23 blocks home, I'm going to go back and get the zeros. (laughs) Uh, anyway, Paula, while you were buying pants this weekend, yeah, I was buying pants this weekend. Wow. That's like the time um, I was on the road and the rental car had the, what is it, catalytic converter? Converter. Stolen? Yeah. And yours was stolen uh-huh. at the... It's just like that. Yeah. Wild. My sister was in town because my daughter was Annie in Annie, as you know, and it was a, this yeah. weekend. Oh, we didn't know that. And it was a triumph. <laughs> And, yeah, you never heard that, right, Bonnie? Oh, was it great? It's so great. In fact, I think I'll, we'll probably post some video from it. But while she was here, my sister was like, Adam, none of your pants fit. Right. My sister kind of is my surrogate mom in some ways now. And she's like, I can't leave California without us going to the store. So my sister and my wife and I went to the store and we got me pants that were four to six inches less in the waist than the pants that I was wearing wow. last winter. Wow. Wow. That I was still wearing. Did you walk to the store? Because that's why. <laughs> That's probably why. 23 blocks, you're going to go down a size. I could barely keep the... uh, Whatever ones I have that were dragging on the ground, and then I had to tie up the waist, and they still... I could barely barely keep them up. I kept showing that to different customers at the REI. I said, look, although I may be buying these 12s, I want you to see that whatever these are won't stay on. Plus, the pants section is on the second floor. So keep in mind, I also walked up the stairs. Well, there's a size right there. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I use to keep my pants up is a dog leash. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? So, because my pants are not staying up either. And so, not a leather dog leash. Those ones that are made out of whatever it is, cotton or whatever. It's cloth. So... I use an extra one of those, and it keeps them from falling down, because I don't have a belt. I was using two shoelaces tied together, but I can't get them untied now. (laughs) Bonnie, if your pants are too loose, I think you just have to walk like 20 blocks backwards, right, Paula? Oh, yeah. That's all it takes. I walked 23 (laughs) blocks both ways, and then, of course, up the stairs, and as I said, that's a size right there. And then I walked another 20-something blocks to walk my dog. So you probably can't see me at all right now on the... You're definitely a size zero now, yeah. On the Zoom, you can't see me. I'm just like a... I'm a disembodied voice, correct? Yeah. That is correct. Yeah. Hey, uh, I know we have a book club to get to, but I I have to get to Tony Anita Hull. You are now in an apartment. I think that's an important milestone. I am in an apartment, and I'm a new human. New human. Everyone's like, wow, you look so happy now. She's Beverly Hillbillies now. She's got the cement pond. She's the Jefferson. She moved on up. Yeah, moving on up. It's beautiful. Oh, that's nice. It's a beautiful place. And you haven't flooded it. I don't 
fucking flat thing. Stop saying it. I don't know what the debt ceiling means, but I can tell you that water comes down from it if Tony's around. So I don't, I don't flood things. She's getting mad about okay. like a little bit wow. of teasing. Yeah. This is wow. Tony's legal testimony. This is Tony during the cross-examination. I don't. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> Given the the, uh, the odyssey, the epic quest that you've been on, that we've documented on this show, I'm just very happy for you because you spent months since your apartment flooded and you lived in that hotel and you had that steamy affair with that guy at the bar. There's no, yeah. um, no steamy yeah. affair. And then, 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 then you got picked up by the police for frittata theft and it was, just, <laughs> it was just like all this shit that went down yeah. and now here you are. Look at you. I know. When she was in the boxcar children. Remember that? For a while she lived yeah. with the boxcar. She lived in a boxcar. <laughs> It's a beautiful story. All right. Speaking of children living in a boxcar, let's open up Aww. this week's Bookie, Bookie Book Club is being called to order, everybody. Okay, I'm a little stoned because we've had painting here all day and, like, the fumes have really affected my head, but I'm going to do my best with the theme, okay? (laughs) We got a book club! 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 That was re- that was really disturbing. But as long as we're talking about that, Bonnie, and your book club thing. Adam may have saved my brain. Bonnie called me with a piece of business today, and she was speaking to me in a language that I did not recognize. <laughs> but what I did make out throughout our usual sniping at each other was that, I'm sorry, Adam, I might not be making that much sense because the painters are here, and I've been inhaling fumes and my head hurts. <laughs> It wasn't that and bad. Towards the end of the conversation, I convinced Bonnie that first and foremost, she needed to get out of her house and stop huffing paint fumes. And Bonnie, what happened? No, okay. It wasn't that bad. I just said, we were yelling at each other. What I figured out about Adams and my communication is we start off yelling at each other. It's kind of like I think we misunderstand what the other person's saying, whatever. But I thought I was yelling. Like, it occurred to me, like, oh, my God, I'm yelling. And that's when I told them, you know, they've had these paint fumes. They're really bad. And my head's just feeling clogged up is what I said. But he, this is, I can't think of enough. He was insistent that I get out of the house. He went, you have to not inhale that stuff. And I was, I don't have any place to go. I've got two dogs and a cat. All the windows are open. You have to get out of your house. You have to get in fresh air. And I will say this. I did. It made a huge, huge difference. My head kind of cleared up right away. And I even called him and went, Adam, I'm so glad you told me to get out of the house. And I was laughing. And it was good. Well, it wasn't good. But anyway, I was glad he insisted. I talked to one of the painters who said that Bonnie kept taking the paint can from him and sticking her face in it. And yeah, that's a mistake, yeah, Bonnie. That's that's a problem right there. Hey, everybody. As longtime listeners know, when Helix Mattresses first started sponsoring our show, Bonnie Burns somehow got the drop on me and made off with the first mattress. But in the intervening years, I have gotten myself a Helix mattress. I've had it for almost a year now, and it has improved my sleep. It has improved my life. I could not be happier. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, which I have, the newly released Helix Elite Collection, which is a mattress designed just for big and tall sleepers, and they even have mattresses made just for kids. Now, if you're like me and you were a little nervous about trying it online, or like Paula, who was screaming in fear 
of buying a mattress online? Don't be. The Helix Sleep Quiz takes into account your individual sleep preference to match you and your partner with the perfect mattress. I took the quiz and I ended up with the great mattress for a side sleeper, the Helix Midnight Lux. Take my word for it, everybody. The Helix Midnight Lux. Oh, don't want to take Adam's word for it. I don't blame you. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash Paula. That's helixsleep.com slash Paula and use the code HELIXPARTNER20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Paula. Paula, I invited you over, but (laughs) fell asleep. Helixsleep.com slash Paula. And if you're going to do it anyway, use our code. Adam. Yes. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. And the sixth one has start a podcast. If that's you, (laughs) make 2024 the year you finally checked learn a language off your list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors. Don't do it. Or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. And Paula, I got to say, I really appreciate the whole like getting phrases that are important to know in that language right away, like how to order food, how to ask for directions, how to speak to merchants. And I really dig more than that, the speech recognition technology, because even if some of our listeners think that I have a weird cadence when I am attempting to speak Spanish, (laughs) I am am speaking it well enough for the Babbel app to understand what I'm saying, at least when I do it right, like this. Listen to this. Adios, Carlos. Ya te vas. Sí, es tarde. Entonces, buenas noches. Hasta pronto. I don't think you have a weird cadence. I think it sounds great. Thank you. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Yikes. And their football team is fantastic. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold, plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Is there some kind of special? Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription. Wow. But only for our listeners at babbel.com slash nobody. If I'm not mistaken, Paula, that is 55% off at babbel.com slash nobody. The one spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. And then you just add a slash and the word nobody. And it's 55% off? Yeah. Wow. Rules and restrictions may apply. And if you're going to do it anyway, use our code. Adios. Hey, guys, it's Adam. And tonight is January 3rd, and I am picking Giannis Antetokounmpo to score less than 36 points and James Harden to score more than 16. Why? Because I like beards. 
Am I putting a lot of money on this? I am not, because I'm not really a gambler, but I am having a lot of fun with Prize Picks. Prize Picks is the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America. They're the easiest and most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. It's just you against the numbers. Instead of battling thousands of other players, including pros and sharks, who I would lose to, you pick more or less than two to six player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in, or in my case, not. So I don't bet a lot. With the basketball season here, you can now pick combo projections across football and basketball from the Specials League, a league created specifically for combo projections that include two or more players from different sports or leagues. For example, LeBron James and Travis Kelsey had a 10.5 combo of three points made plus receptions. Do I get that? Kind of a little bit. Prize Picks even offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. For football and basketball, if you have a player who exits the game in the first half and doesn't return in the second, that player is rebooted. So, it's like an insurance policy. Go to prizepicks.com nobody and use code nobody for a first deposit match of up to $100. That's prizepicks.com nobody and use code nobody for a first deposit match of up to $100. And then drop by and see how I did with the Greek freak and Harden again on January 3rd. My hopes are not that high. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. All right, so now that we've passed our theme song, we read chapters four through six of Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. To give you a quick synopsis of what happens in four through six, well, spoiler alert, not much. Hester Prynne uh, is in prison. The doctor comes to treat her and the baby because they've been out in the sun all day getting shamed. And the doctor turns out to be surprised, which we're not, her husband, who's been out on the countryside, returned, and he says, well... I understand why you cheat on me because I'm ugly and you said you'd never love me and it turns out you never would. And she said, well, yep. And <laughs> he's like, I'm not leaving town, but you can't tell anybody we're married. Uh, and she said, well, I'm not leaving town because, there, well, there's no good reason for that. And then the next two chapters are about Hester living in shame at the edge of town, doing embroidery and raising a bit of a wild child there. And that's pretty much all that happens. Let's, for insight, start with Paula Poundstone and then move to the paint huffer herself. <laughs> well, I notice that you skipped over this part, which is when Richard and Emmeline have grown and blossomed into young teenagers. A sexual awakening awaits them, but for now, Richard and Emmeline have made a comfortable life for themselves on their tropical island. But they long for the world they've left behind. They've built a cluster of logs to serve as a signal fire in case a ship passes by. And one day a ship appears. It carries Arthur, unbeknownst to Richard, who spots the ship from atop a palm tree. Emmeline sees the ship too, but hesitates. Richard comes running onto the beach, yelling to Emmeline to light the fire, but it's too late. The ship has passed. Richard is steamed. An opportunity to leave the island has slipped through their fingers. I'm surprised that you didn't uh, talk about that part. And then... But pa pa Paula, then, Paula, none of that is in the Scarlet Letter. It never leaves the Boston area. There's no Richard and Emmeline and certainly no Desert Island. And now Richard and Emmeline have discovered the joys of sex, time, <laughs> and puberty have caught up to them. The result of their newfound love is a newborn baby whom they name Patty. That sounds like the Blue Lagoon or some such shit. Oh, damn it. Yeah. What are we Wait, reading? Wait, what? <laughs> well, what were you reading? We're reading Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Oh, well, I was reading The Blue Lagoon. I got confused. You know, there's a color. <laughs> 
and a, okay, Scarlet. Okay. So you so instead of reading the Scarlet Letter, you did the Blue Lagoon. Yeah, I read three chapters of the Blue Lagoon. Um, Richard and Emmeline have discovered the joys of sex. Um, actually, you know, I re- I read that incorrectly. I said I've discovered the joys of sex, time, and puberty. Um, but it's supposed to be I've discovered the joys of sex, time, and puberty has caught up to them. I thought there was. Oh, I, see. I thought there was so joy. That's not even your original work, Miss Poundstone, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just misinterpreted oh. <laughs> what I I wrote. It's it a beautiful wrong. story. It's just a different color. Um, okay, in the Scarlet Letter, there is a point where there's some reference to the baby's little pearls social intercourse and i thought yes. whoa whoa that's where things went off the rails to begin with uh it was a strange choice of words i think for nathaniel hawthorne's social intercourse at the moment it's like reading charlie and the chocolate factory if the story had started when charlie was a surly fat 20 year old chocolate magnate and all the real stuff had happened already Oh, right. So we need, to, we need to know the backstory. Yeah. Well, you know, the kid, Pearl, is a little bit weird because she has no, you know, because she has no social intercourse. She has no, she has no social life. She doesn't play with the other kids because, you know, the shame of Hester has been shared with little Pearl. And so, so Pearl's, yeah, Pearl's a bit of an actor-outer. She is. Hey, Bonnie, how did those chapters strike you over at uh, Paint Huff and Central? Yeah, I'm trying to keep my thoughts straight because for a second I was like, is it Puritan? Puritan? <laughs> so, Bonnie, do you need me to give you the summary again? Uh, Richard and Emmeline have grown and blossomed into young teenagers. A sexual awakening awaits no, them. No, that's a different story. Do you need entirely. that? Is that helpful in any way? I'm just trying to make sure I pronounce Hawthorne like I'm struggling with that. And yeah, that's not hard to pronounce. Well, it's Hawthorne. like complicated in my head. But speaking of Hawthorne's, I did a little research, and you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne's name that he was born with is Hawthorne, no W. But his great great grandfather and his great 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 grandfather were both these arch Puritans. The great great grandfather was known as like one of the harshest judges for the Salem witch trials. And the great 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 grandfather also really had this reputation of puritanical dictates about everything. I think that there's so much symbolism in this book, and I know Paul is going to make fun of me, but I think the fact that Hester moves to the outskirts of town, which is like symbolic for being cast out, then it turns out that she's got this... It's not create- symbolic. That's what you would do if you were cast out. I know, but it's still... She's literally it- outcast. Why doesn't she just leave? I don't know why she doesn't just leave, but I think... Being on the outskirts of town, yes, there's that reason, but it also is that she's been cast out. But the other thing is, okay, now... Right, but that's not symbolic. I, I think it is. <laughs> it's, it's, Bonnie thinks there's a symbolic component. She's literally outcast and she's symbolically outcast. Okay, wait, okay. No. So then, you know what happened is, Hester's somebody who's real. Like, she had these emotions. She was ditched by the husband. She ends up having this affair. So she was real. She got punished for being real. She wasn't ditched. She fucked around on the husband. Well, he was he was disappeared. Well, there was a reason. There were circumstances. And personally, I think that's what Nathaniel, that's one of the points he's yeah, trying to make, which is these true. 
religious dictates don't take into consideration the gray. So now you have Hester out there, and it turns out she's really good with, what do you call it, embroidery or whatever? Needlework. Yeah. Okay, so that's her being artistic, creative. That's something real about her. And then all these people that cast her out. Oh, my God. Whenever Bonnie brings up artistic, we're in big trouble. (laughs) Are buying her stuff. Yeah. Okay. Because secretly they want something that's from the outer edges of their society because it's so restrictive. Absolutely. Right. There you go. So they're buying her embroidery and then jerking off to it. Is that correct? 100%. No. <laughs> there, there is not a dry piece of embroidery in all of Boston. Yeah. That's Ew, all I'm God, saying. It's no. so gross. It's lurid cross stitch. That's what it is. Anyway, <laughs> I think this is very complex and... Nathaniel Hawthorne did a brilliant job of thinking it out. Uh, the writing is good, although I will say there is this like two pages where he tries to explain why Hester didn't leave town and instead decided to stay there in an abusive environment that eventually would would affect the development of her child. And to me, the explanation was, because I want to write the fucking book. That's why. Shut up. Sure. Let's move on. Uh, so, Tony, let's get your impression. Yeah, no, I just don't know. I guess it wouldn't make for a very interesting book if she just left and started a new wonderful life. True. It would be like as if Felix and Oscar at the beginning of the movie both got single apartments. (laughs) Fair. Yeah, I just, I still wasn't sure why she just doesn't leave. She's great at what she does. I also found it really weird how Pearl likes to like play with the Scarlet Letter. It's creepy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She's fascinated with that letter. Yeah. But, you know, if the only bit of color you see in your room at night is when your mom walks in with a giant scarlet, beautifully embroidered A on her chest, I guess. you're going to fixate on that. I, like, I know. I just, thought that, I just think that was an interesting detail. But, okay, yeah. here's my theory. It's like what happened to her mom has affected Pearl. And maybe that's why she's so into the letter. Yeah, she's a child born of that letter. She's a child born of sin. But why her mom, Hester, didn't change her name to Amanda, I'll never know. Because <laughs> she just could have claimed it was a, a monogram, right? That's a good point. That's a very good point right there. <laughs> There's something else I was going to say, but I forgot. Wait, do we, I do, I do remember, do we know how old Pearl is right now? She's three. She's, okay, I couldn't... Now she's three. It's, yeah, it's kind of a lazy three. narrative that you don't get a lot of sequential stuff, yeah. which is only okay because nothing's happening. Well, they're laying the groundwork, right? It's like a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like something sexy's gonna happen soon. I feel like you're gonna be disappointed. <laughs> he doesn't detail everything that happens because they skip the rave that they went to. <laughs> and the log rolling. Um, Okay, my favorite line so far is... Women derive a pleasure incomprehensible to the other sex from the delicate toil of the needle. Uh, you, know, yeah. you know, there's three women on this show, and I think all three of us can share with you, Adam. Because uh, I've been wondering, what is this weird and incomprehensible pleasure you derive? It's going to be incomprehensible to you, but the, the delicate yeah. toil of the needle, Adam. <laughs> sure. We derive a pleasure from from that. Uh, I don't get it. Yeah, I'm not surprised because because you are the other sex. Makes no sense to me at all. Yeah. Well, we do. We derive uh, a lot of times after the show, um, after we're done taping, 
you know, Bonnie and I will talk on the phone for a little while, and sometimes I go, you know, I, I got to go because I don't want you to hear me whooping uh, <laughs> while I, because uh, I'm enjoying the delicate toil of the needle right now. Oh. <laughs> it's very pleasurable. I mean, like, very pleasurable. You know what I mean? Uh-oh. Like, wow, no, yeah. I don't. It's yeah. incomprehensible to yeah, me. You I don't know what you you're saying. You know what? You're the opposite sex. Why am I even trying to get through to you it can't be done it's like a cave collapse of rocks in front of me trying to talk to you um it's incomprehensible but i do i i derive great pleasure a lot of pleasure yeah Yeah. from the delicate toil of the needle just not getting it i'm just not getting it well next week what we're going to be getting is chapters seven eight nine things are going to really happen in the scarlet letter and that's going to be fantastic i i gotta tell you if pearl's real father doesn't turn out to be a sexy vampire we're going to be asking Julie Burkobian for the next book club suggestion. Because I, I, this is making me miss Twilight. I miss Yeah, it. no, Edward is the father of Pearl, is Edward. Um, you know what I'm looking forward to next week? Is that one day while playing in the mud on the beach with Richard and Emmeline, Patty utters <laughs> the word boat. Richard and Emmeline look up and see a ship on the water. But unlike the last time, Richard does not leave the beach. You know why? Why? Because the joys of sex, time, and puberty has caught up to them. No, not sex, time, and puberty. Uh, the joys of sex, <laughs> period, right? Time and puberty has caught up to them. The joy. Boy, I am enjoying the heck out of this sex, time, and puberty. Um, yeah. <laughs> I might join you in the Blue Lagoon reading for next week, too, Paula, because that's. Yeah. Uh, it's, I feel like this needs a little spice. Yeah. No, it is. Uh, whoa. She, in fact, Emmeline has to wear. A blue uh, letter, <laughs> letter B on her chest for for, for B for what? Biatch. Uh, oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I'm going to call the book club to a close. Everybody, be ready to read next week. And hey, while you're reading out in public, there's no better way to start a conversation than having Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter in your lap while you're wearing a beautiful black hat that reads, I'm a nobody on it. People are going to want to approach you and ask about it. Now, you can get the Scarlet Letter just about anywhere, but that I'm a nobody cap, you can only get it at nobodylistenstopaulapoundstone.com. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you do smooth product placement. That was smooth. The hot sellers are the trucker cap and I'm a nobody t-shirt. You know what I wonder about the trucker cap? Is that when long-haul truckers buy our I'm a nobody trucker cap. I wonder, <laughs> do they wear it in the little section behind the seat when they sleep? That's what I wonder. Yeah, that's a good question. We should probably do a segment on that sometime if Bonnie Burns ever lets us cover long-haul truckers. That's just a dream for another day. Meanwhile, Paula, what's uh, happening with our vocabularies these days? Adam, I started doing comedy in Boston in 1979, and a year or so later, I left Boston, and yet... I can remember the act of every Boston comic that I worked with back then. You know what I can't remember? <laughs> vocabulary. <laughs> vocabulary words. <laughs> yeah. I did the vocabulary song of this podcast for four years, and I remember maybe two words. Fortunately, I can at least feel good about the way I've increased the vocabularies of my coworkers on this podcast. So I'm going to listen carefully and learn from you guys as I ask you to define a former nobody listens to Paula Pound's vocabulary word. Listeners, if you go to our Facebook page 
or our brand new website, nobody listens to paulapoundstone.com, or follow me on Twitter, or follow me on Instagram, you'll see stunning partial portraits of Tony Anita Hall, Bonnie Burns, and Adam Felber, who earn a body part for each definition they get right. The contestant whose portrait is completed first will be the winner. So, Tony Anita Hall, who I must say is almost fully formed on those places. Really? Uh, are you ready? So, t- so Adam, no Adam, and Bonnie Burns, take off your headsets so that very uh, well, you know, so you don't. Let's just say it so you don't cheat. All right, ready, Tony? I'm ready. Okay, this week's word is nonplussed. Oh, I know this one. Shit, I know what it is. What is it? That is correct. Nonplussed. I don't remember what it is, but I know what it is. It's the one that's not what everyone thinks it is. Yes, I know. It's like on the tip of my tongue. Is it possible, Tony, that what you're thinking is? It's an adjective that means surprised and confused and not knowing how to react? Is that possible? I was going to say non-reactionary, but I guess it's not it, really. Okay, it's an adjective that means surprised and confused and not knowing how to react. Not not knowing how to react. Okay, next time. I got it. All right. Uh, Next time. There won't be no next time. Um, No, I'm kidding. Uh, I love that song. All right, Bonnie Burns. I'm holding up one finger for Bonnie Burns to reinstall her headphones. Okay. She has to pull from under the couch cushion. Uh, all right, Bonnie, are you ready? I am. You know what I was hoping? I was hoping what that you picked a vocabulary word that I knew before you put it in the vocabulary song, because no. I don't. I'm not doing too well with the ones oh, what you, that have been in the vocabulary song. All right, we'll see. I didn't even. Okay. I wasn't sure ready? about pronouncing Puritan. Okay, here it is, Bonnie. This week's vocabulary word is nonplussed. It's a former right. This is a Paula Poundstone vocabulary word. Right. Nonplussed. Where people think nonplussed is like you you were unfazed. It's like the opposite of that, right? So what would you call mm. the opposite of that? Uh, plussed. No, <laughs> no, unfazed. <laughs> <laughs> no. So you're affected by it. Did I get close? No. Um, Are you serious? Yeah, I am serious. Surprised (laughs) and confused and not knowing how to react. Oh, it's okay. Surprised and confused and not knowing how to react. You were so not really near it. Uh, Okay, uh, and and, uh, Adam Felber, uh, Adam is really hoping to acquire another finger. He's going to know this. Did Tony know? Tony knew that she didn't know. (laughs) No. I'm back. All right, Adam, here it is. Uh, the word is nonplussed. Nonplussed? Yes. All right, why, Paula, I'm stymied by your question. I am stymied and confused by it. Wow. Yeah, you're right. How you shall I it. respond? Uh, wow. You suck balls. <laughs> 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 oh. Uh, well, so uh, that was how that was how Tony decided to react. Um, yeah, wow. you're right, Adam. It's an adjective that means surprised, confused, and not knowing how to react. Adam Felber. Yeah, Adam. Fantastic. 
Congratulations. I did too. I knew what it wasn't. I don't okay. know if that really helps. My Okay. <laughs> My favorite is Tony. Was it you who said it might be plussed? No, no that's funny. Oh, the opposite of non-plus. It might be said. plus. <laughs> might be plus. Well, much as it may be a further symptom of, of, of me sucking balls, I'm going to move us on. You know, everybody, <laughs> Alexander Hamilton said, a national debt, if not excessive, will be to us a national blessing. And then he was asked, what if it becomes excessive? To which Hamilton replied, well, then we're fucked. So how fucked are we? We'll find out when we come back. On this day in unremarkable history, Bob Dylan said, I don't know, I just felt like going, huh. (laughs) (laughs) And we are back. Thank you so much, house band Chris Erickson. Hey, Paula Poundstone, you look uh, even more anxious than you usually do today. What's up with that? I'm nonplussed. Oh. Adam, (laughs) I've heard that our country is on a financial cliff that we will fall off if we do not raise the debt ceiling. Now, I know what a cliff is. I know what a ceiling is. I know what debt is. And just last summer, I raised my rental bike seat in Provincetown, so I know what raising is. Plus, I personally fall down a lot. However... (laughs) I don't really understand what all the words mean when they're put together. I wish I knew someone who could explain it to me. You know, just walk me through it. Uh, I, I don't, though. So I guess I'll just have to sit here and look stupid for a little bit longer. Well, Paula Poundstone, you can keep sitting there, but you will soon not look stupid because today we have an expert on that very topic. No, what? That is a coincidence in a flaky crust. It sure is. She's an author and award-winning journalist who has worked for 30 years plus as a business reporter for the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and USA Today. Maybe you've heard of them. She joined the John Hopkins Carey Business School in 2013 as a professor of financial crises. Please welcome Professor Kathleen Day. Thank you. Wow. Welcome, doctor. I'm surprised to hear there's a thing called Professor of financial crises. But let's remember, I'm not really a professor. I'm an instructor because I don't have a PhD. And I'm happy about that because I don't have to do the kinds of things you need to do to get tenure. So I'm really a reporter masquerading as an academic. Oh, I see. But still, the idea that they have someone who specifically knows about financial crises. I mean, I guess part of what that means is that it's just part of the landscape. It is. And the books that I've written are the books that I wish someone had handed to me when I was starting out at the Washington Post covering what is increasingly frequent, one crisis after another. So it's been a real education. I've been very privileged to have a front row seat. Well, I don't know if this is the way to say it, front row seat in crises. Yeah, really. All right, Kathleen, let's let's just start with basic. Why do we have a debt ceiling? Because uh, the 
Constitution says that Congress has to be in charge of the money. That's the plain English <laughs> version of what happens. That's a good answer. Yeah, well, it yeah. is a good answer because that's the house of the people and they're supposed to be in charge of expenditures. So we've always had a deficit in this country, always, almost always, starting with the Revolutionary War, to fund wars, yada, yada, the Depression. And Starting in World War One, we started to have the need to to borrow more frequently, and Congress was supposed to approve that, and they got tired of having to give their signature so frequently, so they said, let's create a ceiling. It's about 100 years ago. And so we'll say you can spend this much, and it can be automatic, and if you go above that, then you got to come back to us. And so this debt, who is it that we owe? Well, let's remember that the debt, before we go who we owe it to, we owe it to ourselves. A lot of it, a large portion of it is different entities such as Social Security actually run a surplus and they lend and it's part of the budget. Social Security expenditures are part of the U.S. budget writ large, but in fact, it's it's its own little unit and it has a surplus and has for years. And so it lends the rest of the U.S. government money all the time. And so, in fact, Social Security, uh, which will have a deficit in 10 years, but could be averted. But right now it's running a surplus and it lends money to taxpayers and lowers the amount of money that they have to borrow. But just let's distinguish right right from the start, I think it's useful, between a deficit and a and debt. So mm-hmm. deficit okay. is, is the difference between your yearly budget. If you have a yearly budget and you say, okay, I'm going to spend uh, 500 bucks, but I only have a salary of 300 bucks. Where am I going to get the other 200 bucks? I'm going to borrow it. The 200 becomes a debt. So the deficit is the difference between what you're going to spend and what you have to fund it. And if that accumulates over time, that's it. That's what the debt is. And we owe it to ourselves and we owe it all over the world. 25 to 30% is held by, I think the Japanese are the leaders right now, but the Saudis and the Chinese, they all hold our debt. They love our debt. I bet they do. So so (laughs) using your $500 example, you only have 300, but you're going to spend 500. Is that right? Yeah. And so the deficit is that 200. So you borrow it once, um, but you haven't yet paid it back, but then you borrow it again. And that's- That the deficit remains two hundred, but the debt is the repeated borrowing. Is that correct? It's repeated borrowing that isn't paid back, so it accumulates over time. So one year you might be a hundred dollars short by two hundred dollars short. And the other important thing to remember here is the same people that are authorizing the expenditures and authorizing where you're going to get the money to pay for it are also authorizing the borrowing. It, it'd be like a parent saying, okay, you have a, a $100 allowance for the month. That would be generous, I guess. Although- Yeah, it'd be nice, yeah. I, yeah, I think it would be nice. $100 a month, and I'm yeah. going to give you um, 80 bucks. And uh, uh, you know what? You're on your own to find the other 20. What are you going to do? What, you're not, it, it's, it's kind of crazy to say we are authorizing you spend this much, authorizing you to collect this much in taxes. This is Congress now talking, not I'm not making my son collect taxes. Um, mm-hmm. you you say, here's what you can spend every year, federal government. Here's what you can collect in taxes. Here's what you can borrow. And if you come up short, come back and talk to us. We're the exact same people just wearing different hats and putting ourselves at different places on the table. I mean, it's kind of silly. Yeah. I'm hanging on by a thread here. All right, so maybe you've already answered this. 
What's the difference between the budget and the debt ceiling? It is a good question because most people don't understand this. And the, the budget is just what it says, just like a household budget. It's how much you can spend. Congress says, dear federal government, it negotiates with the president over how much the federal government can spend. And that's where they bicker over. Uh, we want more military. We want less military. We want less for education, whatever it is. That's where they you get down to what should the federal government spend this year? And it's an annual thing. Uh -huh. And then they also annually decide how are they going to fund those expenditures and say how much tax is going to be there. Now, they don't set the taxes every year. We have big fights over tax cuts. And there's been a couple famous ones during the Bush years, 2001, 2003, and then in Trump, famous tax cuts. And it's those tax cuts that have not, they make no sense given how much Congress says, okay, we can spend this much, but we're going to cut your source of funding to pay for it. And so the deficit has grown. It's a no-brainer. When, when you cut taxes, that unleashes the beast of American ingenuity and business. And we earn more money and the, and the tax revenues go up even as we're cutting those taxes. I know, I know. And guess what? When they do the research, it turns out it doesn't happen. It hasn't happened. What? <laughs> it hasn't happened. And so to be truly fiscally responsible, what Republicans or what I don't even want to say Republicans, because a lot of Republicans privately know this is a wacky thing that's going on. Extremists yeah. in Congress right now who purport to want fiscal responsibility, in fact, were some of the people that uh, allowed the deficits to go up. And in fact, this is a truth. During Trump, before COVID, the idea during that tax cut is to make the deficit and the uh, debt go up to the point where you'd have to almost force people's hand to then take the cuts they were really after, which was to entitlements like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. That's what they really wanted. But like Monty Python says, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. No one expected COVID. And so they had COVID and COVID caused all these other uh, cost to go up. You don't want to spend way more than you have. And we can get into what's good debt and what's bad debt, but you don't want to spend. We're going to. Oh, we're going. To. Okay. But you don't want to spend way more than you should or is prudent because there is the unexpected that happens like COVID when you really do need to then up the debt, up the deficit in, in the name of a greater good. And that was to prevent a, a recession, which really would have hurt everyone. And just to be clear, we're not in recession now. Is that correct? We're not. I mean, technically, there's technical definitions of it. Uh, two consecutive downturns that I think the Bureau of Economic, there's technical definitions, but no, we are not. By not, by technically, and people are worried about it because of inflation. And that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> which I love to talk about. People misunderstand it. And it's, it is complicated, but it's not that complicated. I mean, th these are things I think regular people could understand if it were spoke, if people talked about it in regular language. Yeah. Well, we're going to give you that chance to use some regular language in just a second. I want to point out that Herbert Hoover said, blessed are the young for they shall inherit the national debt, which were wise words that definitely should not have been his re-election slogan in retrospect. We'll be back right after this. Fun fact, when you do the math, every one of us has 64 great-great-grandparents which is why we are all such crushing disappointments. <laughs> I 
All right, and we are back with Kathleen Day exploring the debt ceiling and how we got right up against it. Paula? Kathleen, is is there any value to having debt? Yes, and if you've seen Hamilton, <laughs> which who hasn't many people, hopefully a lot of people have, uh, that, that is the promise. Alexander Hamilton and Jefferson both understood the utility of having debt. Jefferson just really worried about that the downside overshadowed the good side. And he really wanted an agrarian, a farm, a farm. He wanted a farm society. And this sort of, you know, well, Norman Rockwell wasn't born yet, but Jefferson had a Norman Rockwell vision of a very homespun idea, even though he was consorting in a, in a way, but his, his history. But Hamilton was farsighted enough to know that the United States was headed towards manufacturing and, in, uh-huh. and industry, and you need to borrow to do that. And just think about it. I mean, if you have to save up to buy a factory, it takes a long time to do that. And in the meantime, no one has a job at the factory and, and you're not making things or selling things. If you can borrow, right. it's like borrowing to buy a house, a house you can afford and is a good thing. That's a good thing because you borrow and then if you can afford it, you pay it back. And that way your monthly payments are going towards building ownership of your house, equity in your house, rather than paying rent, which just goes out the window. And then later on, you can pass that on to someone. It's same as building a factory. You borrow, you build a factory, you hire people, you make things, you make revenue, you pay it back. That's good debt. It's productive debt. And that kind of financing, as Hamilton understood and economists of all political stripes understand, is an underpinning of the economy. It's where economics and finance really intersect. Finance, good finance, is an underpinning of the economy. Got Yeah, I think I got that. And, you know, we did quote Alexander Hamilton uh, earlier in the show when we were getting ready to introduce you, saying, a national debt, if it is not excessive, will be to us a national blessing. I, I don't know if I'd call it a blessing. <laughs> I shy away from saying things are blessings, uh, but, but it's definitely useful. Uh, we're very practical people. One thing about Americans, although you wouldn't know it today, sometimes we like things to work. Uh, and 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 that's I think people are getting a little tired of all the yelling and screaming because it causes things not to work. And and I predict, and it's one of the things I learned in my writing the books I've written, I learned more than readers are ever going to learn. We've had really extreme wackos all, all throughout our history. I think it comes with democracy. Democracy's messy. And we've gotten through it. And Americans sometimes get pulled in extremes, but we come back to the center because we really like things to work. And, and it's one of our great strengths. And so compromise and not being whacked out on the extremes is a good thing. And what's happening now is we're on this debt ceiling thing. We're going to extremes and we're holding people hostage on whether the United States is going to honor on expenditures it's already made. I mean, come on, we've we've spent the money. We have an obligation to pay it and we're going to renege and say we're not going to pay it. What's up with that? This is the part where I think there are some people that don't understand, which is they think that if you cut spending right now, it will affect what we have to pay. And that's not the case, right? It's like it's like a credit card. We already spent that money and the bill has come due. And you've already used the stuff you bought, so you can't return it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. And a lot of it was for cruises. Um, Paula, don't unzip those cargo pants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you have the tags on, you can return it, but... <laughs> it's what you owe. You and you and not only it's is it what you owe, but you sanctioned it. The people that are gumming up the works here are the people who already said this is what we're gonna do. Right. They agreed to it in the budget and now they're right. trying to say they don't agree to it. 
Um, so one thing that people should remember, there's the budget negotiations, which are annual. And so that's when people argue. And that's when you have government shutdowns. The debt and the budget right. are not unrelated, but they are very different. And people should think of them as two things. And so in the budget, you have arguments, and we've shut down the government before, and voters didn't like it uh, of, of both sides of the aisle. They said, you know what, guys, we hired you to go to Washington, do your job, do your job, figure it out. Uh, you know, don't just shut down the government over it. So when voters didn't like that, it, my opinion is the reason this has shifted to the debt ceiling is people know that po voters didn't like it when the government was shut down. So now they're moving it to this and it's a lot of grandstanding. And I think if we fall over that cliff, which I can explain what that would do, I think there's going to be a lot of people that are like the proverbial, I don't know if it's a proverb of the dog who catches the bus, they will not know what to do with it. And they will be mightily embarrassed and really cost all of us as taxpayers. I like to look at this through a taxpayer lens because I think everyone can agree. They don't want to pay more tax than they should. And I that's what this skating towards the edge of that cliff is going to cost us taxpayers. I really, I'm just hanging on by a thread on some of this. I'm like, okay, I'm waiting for the pieces to come together in my head. <laughs> um, I assume I'm average uh, in, my, in, in my ability to get it. You are. Most people, why should you know this? I mean, I cover this. And I, I, this was, is my bread and butter. This is what I am an expert in. Why should you know it? So I feel like my job is to translate it into a way that people who don't spend all their days thinking about it can understand it when it becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. What the Republicans have just presented is not a budget, right? Didn't they, they said, oh, we want to cut some things, but they didn't put numbers to it. Am I correct about that? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't spend a lot of it is posturing. They they do want, and, and you know, other different people make estimates of what they want to do, but they are making proposals for budget cuts. And it's like, it, it, it does not compute, does not compute. It's like the robot right. Robinson does not compute. This is a debt discussion and they're using the budget discussion oh, okay. and it's apples and oranges. If you want to talk about what should be cut from the budget, do it during the budget. If you uh -huh. want to talk about whether we should pay our debts that we've already agreed to pay, let's talk about that, but don't mix them up on purpose to confuse people and say, we don't want to pay the bills we've already obligated the U.S. to pay because we're going to say we don't want to cancel student debt. If you don't want to cancel student debt, you can have a, a, a reasonable debate on that. There's different sides to that. Have it during the budget process. If we default, it will be catastrophic and it will add billions of dollars to the cost of the U.S. of our ability to borrow. So this effort, ironically, to cut the deficit is adding to it. Yeah. Earlier you said, when I said, well, who, who is it we owe this money to? And you said, well, some of it comes from our own, like our own social security, or sometimes we borrow from ourselves, but there's clearly somebody else here too. Uh, oh, right? they love so it. It's, they love yeah. it. And so they, they would probably not mind it if we defaulted. Oh no, they, well, I think that China and, and Russia, they love our debt because like, I mean, all the top echelon, they're all on property in the United States. We are the place everyone wants to own stuff because we are the flight to safety. 
for better or worse, you can malign us in public, but privately, that's where they put their money because we are the benchmark of financial security. We may not be forever, but we are still right now. And mm -hmm. our treasury securities are the benchmark. They're considered the most risk-free. <laughs> they, are, they are the interest rate at which all other interest rates or most others are built because it's sort of considered the baseline of because interest rates reflect many things, anticipated inflation, uh, anticipated default, anticipate lots of things, anticipating recessions. But the interest on U.S. debt is considered the baseline, the most risk free. And so everything piles on that. So look, the Chinese love to hold our debt and they love treasuries or, or near government debt owned by these financial giants called Freddie and Fannie. And that really is another show, but that's near government debt. And uh -huh. so they love to invest in that stuff because they know it's safe. So uh -huh. about 30%, uh, 25 to 30% of our debt is owned by other countries because they love it. It's safe. And they don't want us to default because then their debt becomes worthless. They do not want us to, to default, but they might like us to because it undermines our standing in the world. So one thing that this does is not only does it raise the cost to taxpayers, but it is, a to me, a national security crisis because it plays into the hands of Xi in China and Putin in Russia, who would love to you know, see us kick to the curb. And right. and But on the other hand, they don't really want to kick us to the curb because they kind of want us to be able to stand up and repay our debts. <laughs> yeah. But they would like to be able to say, see, it doesn't work. All right. When did we first go into debt? I think you said, I think you talked about this earlier, which is, was it from the inception of, uh, of us as a country or, yes. or when we were colonies, were we already debtors? Well, we were when we were fighting the war before we became a country. And in fact, that was the fight. Uh, oh, but, you know, the famous fight between Jefferson and, and Hamilton was over whether to have a national bank because you need a national bank to really facilitate a country's paying of its debt. And, and really, it was the idea of having an incorporation, which is a government sanctioned monopoly. When you think of publicly traded companies that are, have an ink at the end of their name, that just means they're, yeah. they're, they have an incorporation. And what that means is it bequeaths and only a government can can give this it bequeaths limited liability to their shareholders and that means they can raise more money because shareholders are willing to invest because they know they can only lose the value of their investment if the company fails uh creditors can't come after individual investors houses and everything else so the argument that that was really going on back then is do you need a national having a national bank and and jefferson he didn't want to give the federal government the right to incorporate and create a, a national bank to pay our debts because he he looked at it as like the Bank of England and we just fought a war with them and Bank of England was kings and queens. We don't like that. So we've always had debt. The idea is, and what Hamilton did is he won out. He literally, he and Jefferson went and pleaded their case before George Washington. A great, I mean, really, it was a, they plead and he won out and Washington bought Hamilton's uh, idea, which is as fresh today as ever, is that we ought to pay what we owe. Because if we don't, it's going to make it really more expensive to ever, ever, ever borrow. It'll make it more expensive, meaning the interest will be higher? Yeah. Well, that's a real cost. I yeah. mean, when, when, you know, when you, I mean, it's it's an irony of life that the people who can least afford it have to pay the high, higher interest rates. People who have dinged debt or a bad debt history have to pay more to reflect the fact that they are a higher risk. Got you. You can, yeah. 
you can abuse that by charging them so much you become the reason they default. But that's another story, too. That's like credit cards altogether. Um, yeah, right. absolutely. Uh, uh, so who who's raised the, the, the who's raised the debt the most? What administration raised the debt the most? Why did they do it? And, and, and what happened as a result? Is that three questions? I think it is. Well, I think that most people would agree the deficit, the debt has gone up the most in in recent history. I mean, I don't want to go back to the Civil War, um, but but, uh, in recent history, let's say in in the big turn of this uh, century, the Bush tax cuts of 2001, 2003, which again, they were funded by a theory of trickle downness, which doesn't work. They're going to pay for themselves and they didn't. And then the Trump tax cut, which was really loony because it was done in the in the middle of the night. People couldn't see what was there. Some of the stuff that was passed was in handwritten notes. You had wow. you know, corporate jet. Oh, no, it was really. I mean, I've seen and I've been on the Hill till four in the morning and seen people literally go into closets to reach compromises um, and, and come out. And it, it is an interesting process. But this was nuts. This was a few people wanted this tax cut and they were not going to share it until the very last minute and you vote or not. It was crazy. And you had stuff in there like um, tax breaks for corporate jets. But the fact is oh, wow. during Trump and partly because of COVID, but not, but a large part of it was the tax cut is added about uh, somewhere between six to $8 trillion to the debt and the Bush tax cuts added it. So one of the things that is going on right now is this idea that people with a straight face are saying, we are fighting the good fight in in fighting. We're not going to raise the debt ceiling because we want you to promise to to have this fiscal responsibility. Where were they when they added all this stuff, right? So is it really genuine? I'm not sure. They really want to, I believe, and have been on record, and then they had to dial it back because they found out voters didn't like it. They really want to Put a put a, a nail in the coffin of Social Security and Medicare. That's I think their real aim and other entitlements. You know, it's easy for me to uh, judge a tax cuts for corporate jets, but I guess I should admit that that has been very helpful to me. The uh, cor- yeah, yeah, I mean, Paula, well, you're you you whisk around so much on that. If the, yeah. if you're paying a big tax on your jet, I, it's not just the jet itself, um, but also the f- flight attendants and the cookies that I have on my <laughs> corporate jet um, for this, for this podcast alone, you know, Kathleen, I, I myself was in Ireland only yesterday and flew, was able to fly home uh, with the use of my corporate jet. So that I have tax free. I've, tax free, I've yeah. exploited it. I have to admit. Um, well, we, uh, listen, it makes fiscal sense to exploit it. If it's there, the question is, should it be there? And could you still go to Ireland and do what you do and have such a lavish tax break? What happened as a result of the big tax breaks for the corporations, including my corporate jet? What happened as a result of that? Well, it lowers their tax. And the the big consequence of all these tax cuts has been that the rich have gotten richer and the poor, poor. And the real tragedy here is that it, it's at the expense of the middle class. And as you start whittling away the middle class in the United States, our disparity between the haves and the have nots has never been wider since the 1920s. And so it's a it's a problem. Having a vibrant middle class has been a source of political stability. A lot, I think, 
I'm not alone in saying this. I'm certainly not the first to say it. I think part of the acrimony, the political acrimony that has been going on is people feeling left out as they see some people getting more and some people not getting at all. Now, they're also being inconsistent because they're not voting in their own interests sometimes, but that's another story. But but the fact is that we are we are benefiting the few at the expense of the many. It's like the opposite of Vulcanism on Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> so who lowered the debt the most and what happened as a result? Well, I it's it's hard to calculate that. I think what a way to look at it is that until the Bush tax cuts came, I have heard people say, and you know, I've looked at the numbers, it seems correct, but I'm always uh nervous that there's going to be someone come along and say not, but uh, th- there's no question that those tax cuts and the Trump tax cuts have added mightily to this problem, but it looked like the deficits if you hadn't had those tax cuts, the debt would have slowly come down because deficits would not be so great. Well, we had, I remember in the late 90s, in the second Clinton administration, we did manage to balance the budget and maybe start paying down the debt. Did that happen for a year or two? Well, you balance the budget. And when you balance the budget, you haven't added to the debt. And so- uh, right. There are ways in which, it, because of the ridiculous, uh, because of finance, uh, where you could uh, continue to expand the debt. De- yeah. So the in, in theory, that would have happened, that would have continued to happen. But then people said, let's let's do trickle down. Let's give a big tax break to the people who are creating all the jobs and all the money and let's make them richer. Here's one of the things that's going on here, and I think people forget this. Investment banks in this country used to be partnerships. When people are in partnerships, they're very careful not to take a lot of risk because they're joint and severally liable. So if if everyone on this podcast, uh, if we all had a corporation together and we were all going to have to pay if someone else entered into a business deal and it went sour, I'm going to look very carefully and say, hey, Paula, that seems like a bad deal. Don't do that. I'm not. If we go and become a publicly traded company, which all of Wall Street did in the 80s, then suddenly investors are responsible and you separate ownership from who's running the company and the people who run the company, big surprise, they want to give themselves as much money as possible. So <laughs> unless you ride right. them. So you can see uh, there is a line where that used to be that the uh, difference between what the average worker in a corporation made and what the CEO made, it kind of hummed along as a difference. And people accepted that difference. Maybe the person at the top had more education and would they pay him a little more. That's fine. But when Wall Street went to publicly traded companies, the line of their salaries goes up like Mount Everest and everybody else's is is like the plains of Ohio. And so it ratcheted it up for everybody. And that's where you get the 1%. And then you start having the 1% of the 1% and you can go on forever. Don't I know it. I was asked to organize the reunion for the 1% of the 1%. <laughs> Which is where I really racked up a lot of miles on my corporate jet. Uh, so, but yeah. again, tax free, so it's a win win. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, yeah. um, financial crises instructor. I have one more one more question for you. Uh, tell me, uh, you know, steps one, two, and three that happen if we don't pay our debt. Like, what day does it come due? What you know, we wake up in the morning and what has. Because we keep being told we're going to go off a cliff, but I, I don't think anybody's really told people what that looks like. If we renege on our debt, if we default, the cost of borrowing is going to go way up. 
And that means that the cost of, because remember we set those interest rates, the cost of corporate borrowing is going to go way up. So there's going to be layoffs because they have to save money somewhere because they're not going to cut their big salaries. So they're going right. to cut, they're going to, there's going to be layoffs. And don't trust me. Uh, I want to quote one of my favorite economists, Mark Zandi at Moody's. Um, he looked at this when we've skated very close to the edge. It haven't even gone over, but skated close uh, where he has estimates that it's cost just by getting very near that end. He estimates if we did default, I think that it would, uh, reduce household wealth by $15 trillion. It would cost millions of jobs and it would raise taxes and destroy billions and trillions possibly in household wealth. It would reduce the value of your house because interest rates would go up. So, you know, people only have X amount to spend for a house, part of its principal, part of its interest. If interest goes up, you can't get as much for your house in principal. So it's going to cost everybody lots of money. Uh, in myriad ways as it works its way through the system. If you raise the baseline of, and, and and by the way, if we default or we skate too close, it'll take years to recover from it. You can't just then the next year say, oh, we were joking. We're not going to do that again. Really? Yeah. No one's going to believe it. Yeah. I see my corporate jet um, just being sold for parts. And so <laughs> I am- If you just, can get it. it people- yeah, people may not have the money to pay you for it. Oh, that's a good. Oh, that, oh man, that's wow. a good. That's a good. Now, Paula, point. that's why you have to stop driving us off that cliff. Well, yeah. Kathleen, that was just incredibly depressing, but also fantastic. <laughs> She's an author, an award-winning journalist, professor, sort of, and debt ceiling expert, Kathleen Day. Everybody, yay! Thank Kathleen, you. Thanks so um, much. Thank you, Kathleen. Okay, you're welcome. I hope that was clear. I, you know what? It was I think great. I get it. So if I can get it, then somebody else sure can because I am not the brightest bulb in the chandelier. No, let me, listen. It, it, all the books I write, all the stuff I do, is written so that people who don't spend all their time on this but are interested in understand. Everyone should understand the basics of this. Uh, people mm -hmm. make it hard on purpose. Wall Street uses all this mumbo jumbo to make it hard on purpose. I mean, yeah. it, seriously, if I say to you, what's a synthetic collateralized debt obligation? Your head's going to spin, right? What are you kidding me? Right. I, I was hoping you'd bring that up. Synthetic collateralized well, debt obligation, right? Yeah. Do you know what fantasy baseball team is? No. Yes, I have one. That's a synthetic collateralized debt obligation. That's all it is. Oh, then I'm terrible at it. You may be, but it's really not that hard to understand. Anyway, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Coming up, you visited our new website. And in between goggling at the Cats of the Week and buying your I'm a Nobody trucker caps, you had something to say. And it's all in our mailbag, nobody listens to PaulaPoundstone.com edition, when we come back. It's just me, Paula Poundstone. This summer, we've got kids out of school and a political party that won't follow the rule. The earth can't stop heating and I can't stop eating chips. We need laughs. If Jack Smith doesn't come across really soon, I'm going to move to the fucking moon. We need laughs. We'll all still be victims of corporate greed. And now we've got the mental image of Rudy's seed somewhere near his office phone. I have no rhyme with phone. It just it just stops there. Let let let's spend a summer night laughing together. Go to PaulaPoundstone.com to see when I'll be at a theater near you. That's PaulaPoundstone.com. Rudy's seed somewhere near his office phone. And now a news update from the dental chair. Adora. 
investigating the investigator report made no charges and no recommendations. This has been a news update from the dental chair. Thank you, house band Chris Erickson. Supreme, Chris, Yay. thanks so much. Thank you. Hey, Paula, you know, we have some fantastic guests coming up on this show. And in just the next few weeks, we have Michelangelo expert. You familiar with Michelangelo? I'd like to be. Professor William Wallace is coming on the show to talk about all things Michelangelo. He painted the debt ceiling, didn't he? He painted the debt ceiling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He painted the debt ceiling. That's what makes it so palatable. And we have executive director of the International Women's Media Foundation, Elisa Lise Munoz, on the show uh, in just a week or two. So look for that, everybody. By the way, speaking of looking for, Paula, if I was out there in this great country of ours looking around, where might I Wait, find Paula Wait, before you say that, I have something to tell you about upcoming guests. I have been trying to get, you know, I started working on my Christmas song a long time ago. And, you know, I've been around for a while, Adam, I, and I've been trying to get a well-known musician, and, I, I, and I've been through quite a list of them now, to join me in, you know, helping me do a, an aspect of this song. And let me tell you, they've all, <laughs> they, they all either don't call me back or ju- just, I get a hard no. Apparently, the very successful union between me and the music industry over my Not My Butter Finger song has really scared some of these musicians off, I think, is what's happened. Yeah, I think it's I think it's intimidating. Everybody wants to, you know, not be the one who failed to deliver the next get your hands off my not my butterfingers anthem that you made. It wasn't get your hands off of it was not my butterfinger. It's a social justice rap song. Uh, with uh, with Butterfingers as a jumping off place. Uh, but anyways, I just, you know, so I know a lot of listeners have probably been like, well, when is she going to keep working on the uh, the Christmas song? And I just want you listeners to know that the reason I haven't had another episode working on the Christmas song is that the members of the music industry have turned their backs on me. That's why. Yeah. They're scared. Yeah. But, but you know what? Speaking of running, uh, not scared, where are you running to next? Talk to us about where we can see you. Adam, I'm going to Livermore, California, where the city's website says that their hospitality is second to none. I'm going to be treated like Annie at Daddy Warbucks. I can't wait. I'll be in Livermore, California at Bankhead on Saturday, June 10th. Go to paulapoundstone.com and click on the tour tab to get tickets. I'll be in Seattle, Washington, discovered by our own Captain Crinkle, at the Neptune <laughs> Theater on Friday, June 23rd. For tickets, go to paulapoundstone.com and click on the tour tab. Then I'll be in Ogunquit, Maine at Jonathan's on Friday, July 14th. I don't think there's a more beautiful place in the country than on the rocky coast of Maine, unless it's Seattle or Livermore. Make plans to join me. Get tickets at paulapoundstone.com. Click on the tour tab. See you there. Nice. And once again, if you want to click on that tour tab, but you'd rather visit a site that's specific to this podcast, you could always go to nobodylistenstopaulapoundstone.com and then click on the tab that says Paula's Tour. It's all integrated. We've got the whole empire humming on every conceivable cylinder here. I don't want to tear the family apart. You can go to paulapoundstone.com or you can go to (laughs) nobodylistenstopaulapoundstone.com. Either one is a portal to joyous things. 
Right. Okay. And then without further objection, then it's time to move on to that great period of the show that we love so much. The mailbag. What? Adam, wait. Answer the phone. Really? We were about to move no, forward. Adam, and answer the phone. Now we're going to spin our... Okay. Okay. Hello. Hello. Penelope Vanderbottom calling. <laughs> am, am I the hundredth caller? Uh, no, no, no. Hi, hi, Penelope. You are the, in fact, the 13th caller in our second hundred caller contest, but who's counting? Well, that just doesn't seem possible. Was your show on hiatus for a while? No. (laughs) I I would have thought millions of listeners would call each day for the chance to win a biographical tour of the places that made Adam Felber the man he is today. Uh, thank you, Penelope, but we don't actually have millions of listeners. That would be excessive. You, you, you don't? I, isn't that how you make money? By having millions of listeners? Uh, well, yeah, sure, that would be a way for the podcast to make money, sure. But you don't do it for the... M- oh, Adam, <laughs> you, you do it for the art. Oh, that poor Paula Poundstone. She's like Van Gogh, just struggling creating brilliant work, teetering on the brink of insanity and making no money. Thank goodness I found a previously undiscovered Edvard Munch behind her refrigerator. Wait, you found Edvard Munch's scream behind Paula's refrigerator? (laughs) Although there was more than one version of scream, a self-portrait of Munch filled with anxiety and terror, being pulled into a modern world, painted in Berlin and Asgard Strand in the 1890s. The Munch painting that Paula now possesses is a heretofore unknown painting called Sigh. Instead of anxiety and terror, the portrait shows resignation. Monk wears slip-on sketchers, and instead of a background of blood-red sky and blue-swirling water, Psy features a background of wallpaper with little gray poodles pulling red wagons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Penelope, um, they didn't even have sketchers back when Monk was alive, so... <laughs> Adam, don't bring dates and stochastic physics into it. <laughs> I'll admit Psy is a bit outré, but you just don't understand art. It's no wonder you don't have 100 callers. Don't worry. <laughs> I'll call back. Bye. Well, that's actually just what I was worried about. Um, Okay, Penelope Vanderbottom, everybody. Uh, Paula, well, that's, that's helpful that you have an undiscovered Edvard Munch behind your refrigerator. Yeah. Well, uh, my cat Lawson kept, like, pawing back there, and I thought maybe it was just a, you know, a twist tie that had fallen under, and then it turned out, no, there was uh, Edvard uh, Munch, very famous, uh, well, heretofore unknown, sigh. And of questionable provenance given to some of the temporal ambiguities there. Hey, but Paula, you know, we do need to move on, because we have to delve into our mailbag. (laughs) Nobody listens to PaulaPoundstone.com edition. I am so excited. exciting. I know Tony Anita Hull is really excited about this. We had sort of as a prompt, I believe, at, on our website, asking people, what do you want? And boy, oh boy, oh boy, did our listeners respond. They responded with amazing, entertaining, and insightful replies right there for our mailbag. <laughs> Nobody listens to PaulBounceOn.com edition. So without further ado, let's bring in Tony Anita Hull. Tony. Step up to the plate here and give us some answers to what do you want from our mailbag. 
<laughs> Nobody listens to PaulaPoundson.com edition. <laughs> first off, Jamie Reed wants... Wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, first God. off, what? First, wait, this, there's no context here. First off, yeah. from where... Did you reach into something? Let me open. Nobody listens to PaulaPoundson.com edition. Okay, well, I, I, I do agree with our senator... Um, Poundstone over there that uh, my friend across the aisle that you did try to rush into this without context but now that you have you gave the context, context. yeah but he ba- when he passed it over to you there was there was no continuity there was no continuity okay Jamie Reed wants peek behind the cold open I think this is the ticket Bonnie doesn't like the cold open but maybe just maybe giving a peek behind the cold open followed by a regular peek behind the curtain, then closely followed by the cold open, could do the trick. Once that's done, you should have a solid 15 minutes left for the rest of the show. But what do I know? I'm just a nobody. Anyway, you guys rock. Well, thank you, Jamie. I think what you're describing is a Venetian blind. We need a peek behind the Venetian blind, where you can just pull it (laughs) open and closed quickly like that. Uh, Like a signal, like... Like if we were behind enemy territory and we were signaling with a, or if we were kidnapped victims and we went to adjust the Venetian blind and we did like a, what do you call it? Morse code. That's what I meant. Yeah. So, Jamie, brilliant idea. Thank you so much. We do appreciate it because I, I love the idea of us being so meta that we're giving a peek behind the peek behind the curtain. Very meta. Oh, yeah. And I also love having only 15 minutes left for the rest of the show because Bonnie always says the show is too long. I've given up. I'm going with the flow. All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Look at that. A, a brand new Bonnie. <laughs> Until you don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, that's... By the way, Jamie, that was a peek behind the curtain right then. You saw that, you know, she'll say one thing and then do another. That was a peek behind the curtain. <laughs> I have the best intentions. Yeah. Well, and the yeah. best painters. Yeah. <laughs> They're using the good stuff. Um, all right, Tony, what else is in that mailbag? Nobody listens to PaulaPoundson.com edition. Lisa Alexander answers the question, what do you want with? Hi, love the show, and we recently saw Paula perform in Pittsburgh at Munhall and enjoyed that too. But that's not why I'm writing. I did a Google search for your new website, and it didn't come up. No. What did come up were the Starburns and Paula Poundstone links, and neither one has the new Nobody Listens website listed on it. I think more nobodies would visit your site if it were easier to find. I know it's hard to find good help, but surely with Paula's many (laughs) millions of dollars, there's somebody who could be hired to update the show's online presence. And producer Julie Brokobian did confirm that we're not on the first page of results. Well, that's ridiculous. Well, we knew this, Paula. I didn't know that. I guess because I farmed it out to so many employees. At this point, the employees for the show make far more money than I make, and yet I have been able to keep the corporate jet flying. So that's nice. uh, That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, No, I didn't know that. It's the fifth result on the first page. All right. Yeah. Well, we we did talk about this at a recent meeting, Paula. I don't remember that. Was I eating chips? 
You were eating chips. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times I'm not paying attention. <laughs> well, I actually have a genuine answer for Lisa Alexander. Lisa, the, it turns out there's nobody we can really pay because what happens is Google constantly combs the internet and the thing that has in the past gotten the most hits is the thing that's at the top. So oh. it takes a while for a new website to what's called propagate out there to the rest of the world. So very soon indeed, when you search for Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, the website will come up. Um, as for there not being links on the paulapoundstone.com page, well, we're definitely going to fix the paulapoundstone.com page so that the synergy, as Paula likes to refer to it, works perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds good. All right, so that also is an additional assignment. Like our listeners need one more fucking thing to do, one more request <laughs> right. from us. But uh, I think that if you guys go on uh, the Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone website, then that will help move it up the list. Uh, you know. Yeah. In, in fact, what you want to do is you want to Google Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone and then click on that fifth result. Click on the actual thing and then Google will be like, oh, this is what they're looking for. Yeah. Tony, I was wondering, did uh, Christopher Aubin ever write to us? Christopher did write to us. And, and, and where did you find his missive? I believe it came through the website. No, 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 no. What, what, what are you reaching into to get, to get his letter? The mailbag. <laughs> Nobody listens to Paul Townsend, that edition. Thank you, Tony. Uh, Christopher Aubin writes, I went to see the Broadway show Romeo and Juliet for the second time recently, and they have a CO just like you have. About 10 minutes before the show begins, the cast comes out and just chats with each other, usually quietly, so we can't hear, until the show finally begins. And I just have to say, if it's good enough for Broadway, then it's good enough for nobody listens to Paula Poundstone. See? So wait a minute, Christopher. I don't think I understand. So the show hasn't started, and you're sitting in the audience with your, you know, $50 soda and your program, and you're waiting for the show to start, and the cast comes out and just sits in front of you chatting? So Romeo and Juliet are just there together? Like, one's not up on the balcony where they belong? I think they're just acting like they're the cast hanging out. It's a peek behind the curtain, although it's happening in front of the actual curtain. Well, it's a terrible idea. Well, they're setting a mood. It's an overture. No, unless they're talking as if they're the characters, but for the actors and actresses to come out and just chit-chat before... No, because they're supposed to be playing characters. I mean, I'm not playing a character, sadly. No, this is me. Uh, what you see is what you get, which is why we don't have a hundred callers yet. <laughs> well, I think that has more to do with the prize we're giving. But look, look, it's, it's Shakespeare loved gold opens, apparently. What? No, it's it's, it's, Shakespeare never told. No, Shakespeare never told the cast to come out and sit around as cast members. I mean, if you're going to have a peek by the curtain, it would be, you know, like where you're catching Romeo and Juliet while they're not like, wherefore out there. But like, that, it might be more like, uh, Juliet, is my hair okay in the back? Like that would be a peek behind the curtain. Oh, but he wouldn't be calling her Juliet because that, that would be the actors. No, that's my point. He would call her Juliet because they're the characters. You don't want to see the actors. That just sounds stupid to me. Christopher, please write to us and tell us where you saw this production because this is wrong. I think it's at the Classic Stage Company, maybe. If I, I Googled it. Of course you did. You're not supposed to be Googling. Didn't I'm you? Googling on my phone, so I'm not making Doesn't noise. matter. <laughs> oh, my God. 
Well, Tony, put down the Google and tell us what Rita Goldman wants to know about. What does she want? Rita Goldman wants a couple of things. First, she wants to tell you that I freaking love your show and everybody on it. Every Friday, a half dozen friends and I garden together, enjoy a potluck lunch, and harvest whatever we like to take home. That and your show are the highlights of my week, and I'm not sure which one gets top spot. Oh, yeah. You know, sweet. Rita, I think you should combine the two. I think that your gardening group should listen to episodes of Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, and I specifically would point your attention towards the one with Garden Time with Captain Crinkle uh, because there's yeah. so much. There's several. Yeah, oh. so much helpful information that she can give you, like about tomatoes and soil. Uh, I think and long haul truckers. Yeah, Bonnie put over five thousand dollars into soil, um, <laughs> which is <laughs> just a, kind of a startling investment, and she paid for it out of the show's. As kitty, it turned out, it did come out of the show's money, um, yeah. which you know I have some feelings about, but nonetheless, Me she too. really did Me go all the way with her, you know, soil. That's at least that's. Oh, what she, she committed to the bit. Yeah, she yeah. committed to the bit. No, I mean I think she really was trying to grow tomatoes in soil and i guess you can't just use dirt i thought you could just use dirt no you got you need soil yeah. at least that's what bonnie says five at least 000, that's where she says five thousand pounds of yeah. it yeah yeah uh mm-hmm. you know the other thing they could do in that broadway show is have a peek behind the soil um which in bonnie's <laughs> case that's going to be several feet deep um because yeah. She may have buried a body. Uh, so, anyways, thank you, Rita. That's uh, thank you very much, very Rita flattered. Goldman. Is that all from Rita Goldman, there, Tony? Uh, Rita does want one more thing to ask oh, okay. you to do more aunt anecdotes, so I can resend the ones about my aunt and the glass goose and the toaster fire. Oh, all right, first of all, Tony, Tony, where did you get this again? <laughs> Important question. It's written in front of me. No, 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 Tony, but right. where did you get, where, yeah, it's written in front of you, but originally you, you got it from someplace else, where, where's it, where's that? The website? No, 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 Tony, there's a, a thing that you put your hand into and pull them out, what is that? Mailbag. <laughs> Nobody listens to ballpass.com edition. Because I just want to say something about the mailbag, um, it's not the aunt, it's not aunt <laughs> anecdotes. Aunt, what are you? What are you, what are you from Connecticut? What, aunt, aunt, my aunt, what, aunt. What, are you, what are you related to? Penelope Vanderbottom, my aunt. It's aunt, aunt anecdotes. Aunt, aunt. Wow. No, she has an but aunt. I am aunt. Ants am crawl interested. on the ground. No. So do aunts at yeah, on occasion. I was say, <laughs> yeah. Not if they've given up drinking, they don't. <laughs> Well, I want to hear all about Aunt or Aunt Anne or Aunt and the Glass Goose and the Toaster Fire. So we should definitely do that segment again soon. Yeah. So please send it in to our mailbag. <laughs> it's like, I'm Nobody listens to PaulaPoundstone.com edition. Yeah, baby. All right. Tony, let's move on. Reach back in there to that mailbag. Nobody listens to PaulaPoundstone.com edition. And tell us what Thomas Beck wants to know. Thomas Beck. He has followed so closely. He notices yeah. every every twist and turn every of our twist show. Twist and turn, yeah. Thomas Beck wants to know, why aren't you promoting Dad Bandland any longer? Oh, Paula, why are you not promoting Dad Bandland any longer? 
Sheer jealousy, Adam. I just, I wasn't generous enough. Uh, I couldn't, I just. You couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I, I, I don't like, I never liked the idea. You know, I appreciate that you're on our podcast every week, and I never liked the idea of sharing you with anybody else. And there, I've said it. Even though that person you were sharing us with was, was me. <laughs> Launching a venture that could have been synergistic. Well, in any case, uh, the real answer is that Dad Bandland, sadly, is on hiatus. We are currently looking for a, uh, a new network. We have some leads, and hopefully we'll be back someday. The tragic irony is is that we started Dad Band Land during the pandemic when we had to stop the band. And tragically and ironically, our network went away, and they really did just go away at exactly the time when our band started getting gigs again. <laughs> so you can see the band now. Wow. We played last month. We're playing this month. We've got a bar in Santa Monica right near Paula Poundstone where we'll, where we'll be playing next month. But the podcast at the moment, the existing 40 episodes are all that's around right now. Whoa, that just makes them increase in value. Um, Absolutely right. Hey, Tony, any word from Constance Cahill? Yeah, whatever happened to Constance Cahill? Yeah. Constance is alive and well. Constance writes, could you please have shirts, etc., available in women's sizes? Thanks. You know, don't thank us ahead of time, Constance. That... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you you know what? I gotta say, my very own sister brought up Constance's issue. She said there are no women cut T-shirts on our website. Right, but that's on purpose. We did the unisex thing. We've got small through. I think we have extra extra large, and you know we just can't have that volume. We're unisexual. Sorry, people want a more fitted shirt, but my feeling is a lot of people have unisexual shirts. There's your answer, Constance, from uh, noted misogynist Bonnie Burns. Unisex is in. All right, here's the thing, Constance. You can buy a t-shirt from our website at nobodylistenstopaulapoundstone.com, and it also comes with a giant rubber band. And... <laughs> oh, well, that's helpful. Yeah, and that in that way, you can... Um, Put the rubber band around just just beneath your breasts, and it really you know pulls it tight. I get her question. Or if you're Bonnie, just just grab a dog leash, and <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, make that make that thing fit with your leash. I'm surprised Constance didn't want a midriff. Oh yeah, one of those kind of shirts because those are very a midriff shirt. Yeah, those belly, are very popular. Maybe one day we will. Yeah, our website is always expanding. Right, it's just to start. We went with the unisexual thing. I was right. We go up to three XL. We have small through three XL. So buy one of those three XLs and just belt the living hell out of it, there, Constance. <laughs> that should yeah, work. Yeah, and then eventually we'll come out with our officer in a gentleman style. Uh, which will be the, oh, the, that'll be nice. the midriff. Uh, yeah, it's going to be very popular. Well, Tony, if that's all we have, I want to thank you for a fantastic edition of Mailbag. Nobody listens to PaulaPoundson.com edition. See, Tony, that wasn't too much of an ordeal, was it? Not at all. There you go. Hey, Paula, what's going on in the Poundstone product empire this week? Adam, listeners can click on the shop tab at paulapoundstone.com to order my book, The Totally Unscientific Study of the Search for Human Happiness. And before they know it, they'll be reading a book that Garrison Keillor describes this way. The bravest and best improv comic of our time, 
has now done the impossible and created a work of literature that has the wild, hairy spirit of performance about it. There is not a bad seat in the house. Garrison Keillor. If said listeners were to also find an order, my Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone Hood sweatshirt at the shop at paulapoundstone.com, they can be an official ambassador of Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, the comedy podcast, just like Tony Anita Hall. Oh, 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 wait. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, and if you're in Australia or New Zealand, we apologize. We're going to send a more uh, high-performing ambassador around there very, very soon. And we're sending Christy Blackwolf, aren't we, to Australia? <laughs> of course we are. Yeah, she's, uh, uh, just a reminder, everybody, next week on the book club, we'll be reading chapters 7, 8, and 9 of Nathaniel Hawthorne's riveting classic, um, Blue Lagoon. The Scarlet Letter oh. and possibly some of the Blue Lagoon. And remember to follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get them. It's free. And our email, if you're still using such a thing and not going to nobodylistenstopallapoundstone.com, our email's at nobodylistenstopallapoundstone at gmail.com. And that is our show. Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone is hosted by the eponymous Paula Poundstone and yours truly, the not-so-eponymous Adam the Felber. Special thanks to our guest, Kathleen Day! Thank you, Kathleen! And to our house band, Chris Erickson! Yay, Chris! Thank you very much! Our show is produced by Paula Poundstone, Adam Felber, Bonnie Burns, Ken Lezebnik, and Julie Berkobian. We be edited by Vic Lowry. That's our show for tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Won't somebody please listen to me? That's a weird cue. You're going to get it at some point. I'm I'm sorry. Yeah. Spring that on you. Yeah. It it surprises me every time. Every time. You know what? If we get a couple episodes under our belt, you'll, you'll get it. You'll get it. Yeah. I just need practice. Adam, every member of the musical world has turned their back on me. Taylor Swift won't return my calls and she could be a big help with um, yeah, she... my uh, Christmas song. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't get why I'm like a pariah in the music. Um, I, I think you, you must have hit on it with that jealousy thing. They must be yeah. jealous of you. That's, that's gotta be what it is because uh, I've tried to get uh, Fleetwood Mac. They won't. They won't. They won't do it. Won't do it. Well, they 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 have such an acrimonious in-band relationship. You're probably better off there. Yeah, I think. Um, I also maybe stepped on toes when I recorded "Landslide" uh, as a yeah. as a, a Jamaican uh, beat. Yeah, that a reggae was, thing. Yeah, yeah, that was that probably was a, a mistake. Um, Snoop Dogg won't return my calls. Yeah, well, um, that might have been the landslide thing, too, because, you know, he did a reggae album. Oh, shit. God. You know what? I gotta do my homework on these things. I didn't even know it. I just blundered in. Also, renaming the song Landslide Sucks? Again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's what upset people. Um, what's the choir in Salt Lake City that I tried to work with? The Mormon Tabernacle yeah, Choir. They yeah, wouldn't they Tabernacle. wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And yeah. that, you know, that could be my atheism that's keeping them away. I don't know. Yeah, your second album, Fuck God, was kind of a, a strike <laughs> against you for the whole gospel community, I think. Yeah, but it still was popular, just not within the... Yeah, among certain Not people. within the gospel community. No. Yeah. I don't know, who else? Uh, was it, uh, Katy Perry? You know, she did... Now, Katy Perry was on the um, Carol Burnett 90th birthday special, 
uh, and uh, you know, she, but it's not like she's busy. It, that was just one night. You know, a birthday is just one night. You know, it's not like a series. Yeah, it's not like a series of 90th birthday specials. Carol Burnett won't do it. I asked Carol Burnett. No. Well, can't, lady. Even, can't even. Get she doesn't her, have the pipe she used to anyway. Can't even get her to return my calls. <laughs> it's weird. I think she changed her number. Hey, everybody. As longtime listeners know, when Helix Mattresses first started sponsoring our show, Bonnie Burns somehow got the drop on me and made off with the first mattress. But in the intervening years, I have gotten myself a Helix mattress. I've had it for almost a year now, and it has improved my sleep. It has improved my life. I could not be happier. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, which I have, the newly released Helix Elite Collection, which is a mattress designed just for big and tall sleepers, and they even have mattresses made just for kids. Now, if you're like me and you were a little nervous about trying it online, or like Paula, who was screaming in fear of buying a mattress online, don't be. The Helix Sleep Quiz takes into account your individual sleep preference to match you and your partner with the perfect mattress. I took the quiz and I ended up with the great mattress for a side sleeper, the Helix Midnight Lux. Take my word for it, everybody. The Helix Midnight Lux. Oh, don't want to take Adam's word for it. I don't blame you. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash Paula. That's helixsleep.com slash Paula and use the code HELIXPARTNER20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Paula. Paula, I invited you over, but you fell asleep. Helixsleep.com slash Paula. And if you're going to do it anyway, use our code.